Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to, Christ. to Christ. Thanks again, Morgan. So uh, good morning, everybody. We are, uh, we're continuing in our series uh, that we're calling Love Supreme, the Anchor Doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, and the title of today's sermon is Chosen by Grace, and it's uh, historically, uh, to many, troubling and even controversial uh, doctrine. It represents uh, the U in that little acronym TULIP that we're working through. Uh, and the U stands for unconditional election. This doctrine relates to how people enter in to a relationship with Christ. Uh, uh, some proponents include, of course, the likes of Luther and Calvin from the Reformation era or St. Augustine from the 4th and 5th centuries, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards from the 18th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon from the 19th century, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones and Dietrich Bonhoeffer from the 20th century. Uh, some more uh, contemporary uh, proponents would include the likes of R.C. Sproul, Russell Moore, John Stott, J.I. Packer, Tim Keller, Eugene Peterson, and Paul Lim. So, uh, what does this doctrine suggest? It suggests that Scripture means exactly what Scripture says and that is that the sole reason that any of us is in relationship with God is that He chose us before we chose Him. Not having to do with anything good, anything virtuous in us, but simply because He chose us, simply because He loved us, and that's why He loves us, simply because He loves us. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. In other words, He set His heart on us before we set our hearts on Him. We will never seek or choose Him unless He seeks and chooses us first. We believe in Him because we are chosen. We are not chosen because we believe in Him. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright put it this way. In the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, 
Paul will declare that before this grace reached down to us, we were dead and needing to be made alive. We couldn't lift a finger to help ourselves. The rescue we needed had to come from God's side. And so, I want to sort of plunge into this um, understandably disorienting teaching from Scripture and talk a little bit about the offense that it can cause, why it offends us, and the posture into which it must send us. So, first of all, the offense that it can cause. We can look at this teaching and think immediately, well, this, this sounds like an assault on free will. Are people just robots? And, and, and furthermore, it doesn't sound fair at all. Why would God choose these people to be adopted into His family, but not these people? And we never ask that question when a, a human set of parents adopts a child. Uh, you know, we, we never criticize the, the human parents for adopting the child into their family uh, instead, we celebrate that, and we don't criticize them for not adopting all of the other kids who could have been adopted. We, we just simply celebrate that they've chosen one or two or three children to come into their family to assume their names. And we say it's not fair, and, and yet if, if we remember the T from the tulip, total depravity or total inability, human corruption, the biblical teaching that compared to the holiness of God, we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Or as it says in Romans chapter 3, as far as God is concerned, there is no one who's inherently good. There is no one who inherently seeks God. There is no one who is inherently righteous. And so, if we got fairness from God, we would all be orphans. None of us would have the so-called forever family. You know, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul wrestles with this one. Uh, he's teaching this very doctrine in Romans chapter 9, using the example of Jacob and Esau. And he asks the question that he anticipates his listeners asking, and maybe some of us are asking this question right now. Does this mean there's injustice on God's part? Is God unjust? Is He not fair? And Paul goes on, why does God still find fault with anyone? Who can resist His will if this teaching is true? And Paul goes on again, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? And so, Paul is playing hardball a little bit here with kind of the, the skeptic, the one who's, who's pushing back. And he's essentially saying the question is not, do we find this teaching acceptable? The question is, does God affirm that this teaching is true? And if we do a survey of both the Old and New Testaments, we see this consistent thread emerging. Jeremiah Chapter 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, the Lord says, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Or Isaiah 65, 1, 
I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Acts 13, 48, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't say that all who had believed were appointed to eternal life. It says that all who had been appointed to, to eternal life believed. There's a cause effect there. Or Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty seven, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Or John six forty four, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, in the ancient literature, this word draws, which is from the Greek word elko, it, 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 the, the only other place, as I understand it, that, that that word can be found in ancient Greek literature is in reference to uh, people drawing water out of a well. And as, as one theologian has put it, that, there's nobody who has drawn water out of the well by, by trying to woo the water out of the well and, and saying, you know, here, water, water, come here, water, water, I'm up here. What happens with water when you leave it on its own is it finds the lowest and darkest place that it can. That's what water does. It goes into the ground unless you keep it suspended above the ground. It stays at the bottom of the well and travels through the cracks all the way down to the darkest, coldest place. And that's the same thing the Scripture seems to be saying that the human heart's going to do on its own. Even this use of the word adoption, it's used throughout especially the letters of Paul. This is how the relationship between God and His children is described. None of us can name a single child who has adopted her or his parents. It's always the other way around. We don't adopt God. God adopts us. And yet at the same time, and I'm so thankful that Paul would use words like mystery to dignify our questions, the ones that we still have, it's also still not an assault on free will. Free will is kept intact. We do have a choice. But wait, I thought you just said that we don't have a choice. Well, we do. You know, the, the statement, I chose Jesus, I decided for Jesus, is absolutely true if you're a Christian. However, at question here is the reason why I decided, for, I made a decision for Christ, or I, made, I chose Christ as my Savior. And what, what Paul is suggesting here is that the reason we choose is because God chose us first, it's because God fell in love with us before we fell in love with Him. This teaching relates to the teaching of last week, that, 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 that every human heart left untouched by the kiss of God is under a spell. And, it, and if that spell is not broken, we will always choose against God and not for Him. It's like that wonderful fairy tale, you know, Beauty and the Beast. Remember? It, it's the kiss of the beauty that, that, that brings the beast to life and, 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 and transforms the beast into a beautiful human being, or not, you know, a, a beautiful creature. Without God's kiss, this is what God is saying, unless God kisses you first, you'll never kiss Him back. Ephesians 2, again, it doesn't say we were sick in our transgressions. It doesn't say that we were weak. Uh, and inhibited in our 
transgressions, it says we were dead. But it goes on to say, but God in His infinite mercy made us alive in Christ. We will not choose Him on our own because our desire will not cooperate with the invitation of the gospel unless God triggers our hearts. This word draw in John 6.44, you know, like the water out of the well, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sends me draws him. The definition here is to compel by irresistible authority. You know, with regard to the, the free will question, which is a very legitimate question, even Paul anticipates it. Jonathan Edwards wrote, wrote this, this work. I love the Puritan titles. Those of you who are in publishing and, and marketing books, ask yourself how this would play in the market today. A careful and strict inquiry into the, into the prevailing notions of the freedom of the will. Bestseller written all over it, right? We've changed our strategies for pitching books. But one of the things that Edwards says in that, that work is this, the human will is always free. It is free to choose and always will choose what the mind thinks is best. When confronted with God, the mind of a sinner never thinks that following or obeying God is a good choice. Human beings think that sin is best, which is why they choose it. Therefore, unless God changes the way we think, we're not going to change the way that we think. We'll put it this way. If, if, if you're about to go out on a date, you have a choice between two scents to spray on your body. Either, either there's the, the perfume cologne option or aftershave, whatever the case may be, or the skunk spray option. Say you have a, a jar of skunk spray that, that you can spray on yourself. Well, maybe if you don't like the person, you'll spray the skunk spray on yourself. Um, but if you like the person, if you want to be with the person, you're going to use the cologne and the perfume every time. That's going to be what you choose because your mind doesn't want your body to smell like a skunk in the middle of the night. Or if if you're given a choice about what to eat for lunch today and your two choices are chicken and deer poop, you're going to choose chicken unless you are our dog. <laughs> <laughs> Always wondered why she sticks her nose in the grass, but that's another story. If you are a human being, <laughs> I'm guessing that 100% of the time you're going to choose chicken in that situation. We're always going to choose what smells best and what tastes best to us, and the spell that the human heart is under is that God does not smell good. He does not taste good. We like the idea of a God that we can control, of a God that we can revise and edit according to our own sensibilities, a God over whom we can stand in judgment. We like that idea. We like the idea of a God that we can keep out when we need Him and when it's convenient, but who we, you know, shove into our pocket because He's that small when He makes us uncomfortable. That's the God we want. 
That's the God that the human heart under the spell will always choose, the one that we can control, the one that we can lord it over. But who's God in that equation? You know, Woody Allen doesn't realize what a powerful theologian he is. He did an interview some time ago with Walter Isaacson of Time Magazine who asked him about the adulterous relationship that he was in with his 14-year-old stepdaughter. And Isaacson asked the question, do you think that's healthy? And Woody Allen's answer was this, do you remember? The heart wants what the heart wants. Two people fall in love, and that's all there is to it. In other words, you can't help what your heart falls in love with or who your heart falls in love with, because the heart wants what the heart wants. But that's the spell that's on the human heart that's dead in transgression and sin. We are convinced that sin, or, you know, to put a more positive spin on it, independence is the perfume in the chicken, and that God is the skunk spray in the deer poop, because the human heart always travels to the darkest, lowest, coldest place, just like water in a well. God is a threat to us, or He seems that way, because He will interfere with our self-indulgence, with our addictions, with our idolatries. We want Him to be a hands-off God, and and so, of course, we want to be pro-choice when it comes to the God that we serve. That's why it offends us. We are pro-choice to the core. And what is choice? Choice is this. It is the luxury of the privileged. Choice is the luxury of those who have privilege. Options are the luxury of those who have privilege. If I have privilege, I choose my clothes. I choose what I eat. I choose the school that my children attend. I choose the college that I attend. I choose my career path. I choose the neighborhood in which I live. I choose the kind of car that I drive. I choose whether or not I'm going to drive a car. I choose the church that I attend. I choose the president who leads me. When your life is filled with options, when you're used to getting what you want, you eventually may start to live under the illusion that you are a self-made person. You may start actually believing what William Hendley said in his famous poem when he said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or the American dream even that says, forge your own path, make your own way, follow your own heart, follow your own dreams, be whatever you want. But when we lack options, like over 50% of the world that lives on less than $3 a day, when we lack options, when we live in a place of dependence, because we have to, rather than, than with the freedom of independence, we don't care about being pro-choice with the various parts of our lives. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to make it. We're just trying to find a family that might take us in. 
See, when you lack options, when you lack privilege, words like you are predestined, you're chosen, you're adopted, you're redeemed, you're beloved, you have an inheritance, become less ho-hum, and they become more wow. You know, seeing no longer a slave to fear in a blue-collar church, you might see a a, a much different reaction than you're going to see in a white-collar church that I'm no longer a slave. I'm a child of God, chosen into His family. Ho-hum. See, but if you come from a place of dependence, you're never offended by words like predestination and election. You're always grateful. Think about Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, where he has this encounter, this visible encounter with God, and he He sees how holy and righteous and pure God is, and then he sees himself in light of that. This is a prophet. This is a preacher guy who has a lot of integrity relative to his neighbors. And he says, woe is me, I'm ruined, wretched man that I am. Oh, my goodness. And God says, no, you're chosen. No longer a slave to fear. You are a child of God. He sends the angel, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And then what happens? Isaiah, I've got a job description I'm looking for somebody to fill. I want a preacher who's willing to spend the rest of his life being persecuted, who wants to spend the rest of his life having people mock the things that he says, who who is willing to have his own body sawn in two, and and that will be the day of his death. Here, my Lord, send me. Why? Because I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I am not a wretch in the sight of God. I'm an adopted son. I'm no longer an orphan. I'm a daughter. I'm a son. Another one is Zacchaeus. Remember him, the greedy tax collector in Luke chapter 9, and he's, you know, Jesus is milling around, you know, in the community, and and he picks a distant location in a tree so he can just get a glimpse as an outsider looking in. And what does Jesus do? He sees him up in the tree and he says, you, yeah, you up there, Zacchaeus, come on down because I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to show you a hospitality and a welcome like you've never known in your own house because you're chosen. Your identity is no longer a crook. Your identity is no longer an orphan and a slave to fear. You are a child of God. I choose you. You did not choose me. Everybody, it's clear that you did not choose me. I chose you. And what's Zacchaeus' reaction? Oh, I'm so offended that you say that I'm predestined, that, that, that this, this salvation equation is more about you than it is about me, Lord. I thought I had a choice in the matter. You don't see any of that with Zacchaeus. What you see is, oh my goodness, everybody, you know what? Everybody that I've ever stolen from, I'm going to give them back five times what I stole from them. And that's what I'm going to do, because I'm no longer a slave to fear. You know, last week I was in Georgia visiting my dad um, while he had heart surgery, and um, we're on the way to the hospital to the surgery, and, I, and it was like 12, 15 in the afternoon, and I said, Dad, is there any restaurants we can stop by so I can just grab a quick bite to eat? And he said, well, there's a gas station between here and the hotel. He lives in a small town. I'm like, 
I'm not going to eat lunch at a gas station. He's like, no, seriously, like, that's your only option. And so we pull up to the gas station, and all they've got is fried chicken and biscuits. And I'm thinking, there's no Whole Foods in here. This isn't farm to table. My only choice was that I had no choice. And then there's this line of locals, and the look on their face is as happy as the look on my face would be if I were to step into Martin's Barbecue or Green Hills Grill or Bar Taco. Here's the thing. The more options you have, the less grateful you're going to be for a gift. The less you have, the more likely you're going to be to see everything as a gift. This is why Christianity has always sort of been repulsive and unsophisticated to the privileged and a breath of fresh air to those who have very little. Remember the Foster video last Sunday? I mean, I just think of the the teenager maybe who, you know, complains about, you know, his dad because of all the corny dad jokes or or complains about her mother because her mother, my mom asked me too many questions or, or complains about his brother because his brother, you know, burps at all the wrong times. You remember the Foster video from last Sunday where the little girl broke down in tears and just said, I just want a family. I just want a family. You know, say you're on a, on a trip and somebody decides that you're going to stay in the Motel 6 and you're angry, and you're thinking, you know, I'm used to Hilton Honors. I'm used to the Marriott. What's this Motel 6 business? It's all about perspective, right? Because if you're from a remote African village, and somebody says, I'm putting you up in the Motel 6, you're going to think, I won the lottery. They have running water there. They have beds there with blankets. I've heard about those things. We are too pro-choice for our own good. When you hear God chose you, if you are middle class in spirit, you're going to find it offensive or boring. If you are poor in spirit, it's going to be the best news you've ever heard. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise or influential by human standards. Not many of you were noble, of noble birth. Not many of you were privileged. But God chose the foolish, weak, lowly, despised things of this world to shame the wise, the strong, and the powerful. To these self-haters, this is a new day. You have been handpicked by the God of the universe who foreloved you from before time. As sappy and sentimental as this song is, it is theologically spot on longer than there have been stars up in the heavens. He's been in love with you. He marked you for His forever family. He marked you not to be an orphan, but a daughter or a son. You know, to to the entitled pro-choice spirit in us who thinks that we are the masters of our own fate, your only choice is to enter the… if you want to enter the kingdom, is to do so as a dependent child and as a poor person dependent on a system outside of yourself for survival. Lastly, the posture to which it must lead us. John Stott says this, this doctrine promotes humility, not arrogance, assurance, not apprehension, responsibility, not apathy, holiness, not complacency, 
mission, not privilege. So let, let's hone in just on the humility, not arrogance part. I am a Christian not because I am smarter than people who are not. There are many, many people in the world with a much higher intelligence quotient than I have. Christopher Hitchens, Stephen Hawking, 62% of the world's top philosophers are atheists. They are smarter than I am. I am not a Christian because I am better than people who are not. I am not as generous as Andrew Carnegie. I am not nearly as compassionate as Mahatma Gandhi. I don't care nearly as much about mercy and justice as Elie Wiesel. You know, this Romans 9 teaching that I've referred to and this Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 teaching, it says the opposite. You're actually… The, the, the paradox of being chosen is that, that, that many of us who are chosen are not smarter and not better. And, 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 and to make that point, Paul uses the example of Jacob and Esau. Remember where God said these troubling words, Jacob I have loved, the liar who would steal his own brother's birthright, the liar I have loved, and Esau the better son I have hated. Yikes! And yet, there it is. You know, Ed Clowney, Westminster theologian, put it this way, you are God's chosen people, not God's choice people. I love that he uses the word mystery because it is a mystery that God's thoughts and ways are higher than mine. And that's something, especially around doctrines like this, I've got to rest in, and I've got to wait, and it's probably going to be the first question, you know? Why me and not Gandhi? Why me and not Christopher Hitchens? Why me and not Elie Wiesel? What we do know, though, is God has a deep heart of compassion for those who stay orphans spiritually. Ezekiel tells us He takes no pleasure in the death even of somebody who's wicked. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Jesus calls Judas friend as Judas is in the, the act of betraying Him. You know, if we struggle with this doctrine, this is sort of the last question, what if I see it in reverse? What if I think God does choose me because I chose Him? Look, there's grace for you too. R.C. Sproul spoke on these things at our church once, and, um, you know, he expressed, you know, the same things I'm teaching today about election and predestination. And somebody said, well, Dr. Sproul, Billy Graham believes the opposite. Do you think you'll see Billy Graham in heaven? And R.C. Sproul said no. And there's this collective gasp, and he says, let me qualify my answer. I believe Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God, and I will be so far away that I, I probably won't get to see him in heaven. That's my answer. What matters even more than where you land on this Armenian versus Calvin debate is where is your heart? Far be it from me to disown the likes of Billy Graham and John Wesley and C.S. Lewis who disagree with me and Jonathan Edwards and the others on this. The real question is, has the heart of Zacchaeus made it into my heart? The heart that says, me? Yes, you. Let's pray. Wretched man that I am, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, 
and I live among a people of unclean lips, to which you, Father, say, you are chosen into a forever family. I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to take over. And that's a good thing. Father, teach us to trust you where we don't understand you. Teach us to believe that, 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 that it's the doctrines that we have the most trouble with and what we do with them that indicate the true measure of our trust in you. Do we believe, will we believe that you know more than we do about who belongs in the family and who remains on the outside? Do we dare believe that you know better than we do? Do we dare believe that all of your ways are good? Do we dare believe that whatever you are God ordained is right? May it be so. Amen.